What do football, augmented reality, and bell peppers have in common? Well, my guest for this week, that's what. He once drew a yellow line across the line of scrimmage, and now he's making his year-round gardening dream a reality. What the hell am I talking about? You'll see. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week, well, this episode is not the timeliest episode I've ever aired, but that's just kind of how things worked out. Hank Adams is a local boy here in Chicago, and once upon a time, he was the CEO of Sport Vision. That's the company that originally put the yellow line across the line of scrimmage during football games. Well, in addition to that yellow line, Hank has something of a green thumb, and I met up with him this past January during CES to chat about Rise Gardens, his connected hydroponic indoor garden. I've been using the garden myself through one of the most unforgiving winters Chicago has seen in a long time, and now it's the middle of July, so what better time to talk about indoor gardening, am I right? Well, when we interviewed, it was a lot colder outside. Also this week, we'll talk about a little bit during the news segment, but Apple released a battery pack for $100, so I'm countering this week with an accessory from Mophie that will do exactly what the Apple Power Pack does, but for half the price and twice the capacity. And we will get to all of that, but first, we have to get to the news of the week. Before we get to the news, I have something of an announcement. I've talked at length about my upcoming vacation, which was going to result in two shorter shows for you. Well, that's not happening anymore, so the good news is, more news for you. The bad news is, less drinking for me. But it's all good. I was planning another vacation tech piece I did last year, but that's going to have to wait for now. But I've got some other ideas for a behind-the-scenes look at the life of a reviewer, so stay tuned for that. But now, let's get to the news. When Apple introduced SharePlay for FaceTime a few weeks ago, some Amazon users might have been like, uh, yo, over here, bro. That's because Amazon debuted Watch Party last year to Amazon Prime, which was basically SharePlay, but limited to Amazon Prime Video and also limited to your computer's browser window. Now, Amazon is rolling out the feature to Fire TV devices, and Watch Party can be a real party since you can share the stream with up to 100 friends. Of course, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around watching a movie with 100 friends video chatted in. 100 would be just completely unmanageable and just no thank you. Personal taste aside, I guess if you're into this, then you do you. Watch Party isn't available for mobile devices yet, so SharePlay has a key advantage there. LifeWire also points out that Netflix, HBO Max, and Hulu all have similar watch-sharing features, and man, I am so out of touch about this. This is how very, very little I wanted this feature. Still, it is, slash was, slash will remain a great way to keep hanging out with friends and watching movies during the pandemic, so I guess I can see where people are coming from. There's still no word on whether any of these watch sharing features will allow you to mute your friends who just won't shut up during important scenes because we all have that friend and frankly i'm pretty sure in most cases i am actually that friend Speaking of streaming movies, Black Widow debuted in theaters and on Disney Plus as a premiere access movie this week. I went ahead and picked it up, and 
Don't Tell My Wife, but I actually already watched it, too. It's okay, though. It's nothing really special, nor was it seemingly worth the wait, however long it was, 18 months or so. I don't know. Time has no meaning. Yes, it is about damn time that Black Widow, or frankly any female lead, got the lead role in a film, but it's interesting to note that Black Widow did not get the backlash that Captain Marvel did, despite being the same type of strong female lead role. But I guess boys bitching in basements only have so much staying power, especially when it comes to women. And I did not mean that pun, but I kind of meant that pun. As for the movie itself, like I said, it was just okay. It's not the best Marvel movie ever made. There were some fun moments and a crap ton of action, so if I recall correctly, I remember Kevin Feige saying that Black Widow set up and or clarified some things from Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. But I did not see that at all. A couple of late scenes, I guess, added a bit of context, but overall, nothing major. This is a fun action flick, so if you're into the MCU, and Black Widow in particular, this is her official swan song, and she will be missed. We've still got Shang-Chi, The Eternals, and Spider-Man coming up this year, and of the three, I'm most excited about Spider-Man. The other two have potential to add to the mythology, but I'm kind of stoked for Peter Parker. Honestly, I'm really not sure how Marvel is going to recreate and or build on what it did for the first 24 movies. All of those characters being interconnected with team-ups, it's such an ambitious project, and I haven't been blown away by what I've seen since Endgame. So, at this point, I'm hoping that Endgame wasn't Marvel's Endgame, but we have a lot more movies coming, so I guess let's see what you got, Kevin Feige. Speaking of the MCU, Loki finished its six-episode run this week. I haven't watched the finale as of this writing, but I will say I enjoyed the series thus far. Loki being a love interest to himself is a little weird, but... I guess I won't judge. Overall, I'm curious as to how this will affect the MCU going forward. They're really leaning into this multiverse thing hardcore, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. Stay tuned. If I'd actually watched the finale, I might have more to say about it, but so far, I've enjoyed Marvel's ventures into this episodic TV format, so I look forward to more as long as they're not animated. (coughs) What if? (coughs) Android 12 is implementing a new feature probably, that allows gamers to play a game while it downloads. That should allow players to get a jump into new games by downloading key assets first while the rest of a download happens in the background. This is similar to PS5's Quick Play feature, or so I've heard since I've never owned a PlayStation. Personally, I think it's a cool move. While I could poo-poo the lack of patience among kids today and get off my lawn and all that, this does make a lot of sense. You're not going to use all five gigabytes of data files right off the bat, so it makes sense to allow players to get gaming early, as long as in-app purchases are in place, because come on, man, daddy's got to make some cheddar. Now, I say probably because it's an announced feature of Android 12, according to Google's address to developers. If it was something lurking in the beta, then that's a different bag of potatoes, but since Google is actually announcing this feature to developers, it's fair to assume that this is actually coming. The only caveat to that is it's only in Android 12, which means a whopping, what, 8% of people will be able to use it in 2022? Hey, cool. Personally, I'd like to see Google address this before addressing gamer concerns, but the nature of Android says that this is low-hanging fruit, so just go ahead and pick away at the low-hanging fruit, Google. 
President Biden signed an executive order this week aimed at protecting consumer rights and the right to repair movement. The order asked the FTC to establish rules for manufacturers to make their products more repairable and to make parts and tools available that will allow independent repair shops to replace parts of devices. While cell phones are one of the biggest culprits against the right to repair industry, this issue extends from phones all the way up to gigantic tractors that require specialized parts and or software in order to fix properly. Now, let's keep in mind that this is an executive order, so (laughs) whatever. And for the executive order to be a solution, the FTC would have to get rules in place, you know, before the Biden administration comes to an end. And even then, there's no guarantee that the rules would stay in place. So again... This is a big whatever burger, honestly. But it is a boon for the right to repair movement, and manufacturers have been getting away with some bullsh for a while now. For example, iFixit calls Apple's AirPods basically unfixable. The problem with the lack of right to repair laws is that electronics, and most especially cell phones, are delicate and generally expensive to fix. If you have like a $500 phone and the screen cracks and it costs $150 to fix, many people just say, I may as well pay a carrier 30 bucks a month and get a new phone. And then off to the dumpster goes that latest phone. And that, kids, is called e-waste. And we have a ton of it. Actually, we have a lot more than a ton of it. We probably have a ton more of it in the time that it takes you to listen to this podcast. So anything that we can do to make repairs less expensive is better for the wallet and better for the environment. A week ago, Elon Musk and Tesla announced a new version of the Tesla would be coming in the form of a hatchback car for just $25,000. That's right, a Tesla for $25,000. Tom's Guide points out that this is the only Tesla that really matters right now, and they make a compelling point. Basically, until now, Teslas have not really been all that... What's the word that I'm looking for? Oh, not expensive. There are a lot of electronic cars at the price below the Tesla, even the cheapest Model S. I mean, $25,000 is honestly still not all that cheap, but it's more accessible than most, which is a good thing. Tom goes on to point out that the new Tesla will have all the bells and whistles and options as any other Tesla, including the terribly named autopilot feature and more. Plus, he speculates that the new Tesla will have a decent range since Elon Musk pulled the base Tesla Y model for having an unacceptably low 244-mile range. The new Tesla will have a newer, denser battery, and it'll be lighter, both of which will boost range even higher. So overall, this is good for Tesla. I'm going to want more detail about this car before deciding whether or not I want one. But honestly, it's my wife's turn to pick the next car, and I know she wants third-row seating, so I'm thinking a Tesla might be two cars away. So no, dear listeners, no Tesla reviews coming anytime soon. And at the intersection of those two past stories comes a tale of a broken Tesla. This Tesla suffered some kind of road debris damage, which punctured the battery cooling system at the bottom of the car, which... If you ask me, it's kind of a stupid place to put anything that could be punctured, but I digress. It seems the authorized Tesla dealer quoted an astonishing $16,000 to fix this by replacing the entire battery pack for a hole in the cooling system. Instead, the Tesla owner took it to an independent repair shop who managed the task for a measly $700, which... Wait, hang on, let me check. Yeah, well, 16, okay, I'm going to carry the 9. Yes, is definitely cheaper than $16,000. And what's worse, the dude had a problem with his insurance, so it wouldn't cover the car, but Chalopnik rightly points out... 
That's not the point. It doesn't matter who pays $16,000 to fix a hole in a plastic tank. The point is no one should have to pay to replace something that can be repaired with basic plumbing or a good roll of duct tape if you happen to live in West Virginia. If Tesla had its way, then they would have pulled the entire battery and sent it off to some landfill and just like that, more e-waste. Maybe Tesla would have attempted to recycle some of the components, but even so, it's just wasteful. Wasteful of money, wasteful of resources. I just feel bad for the poor Tesla owner who probably voided his warranty for practicing common sense, which is admittedly not always what Tesla's CEO does. Oh, okay. Okay, I guess I can see where Tesla's coming from now. That doesn't make it right, but still, I can see Tesla's point. Just goes to show why billionaires probably shouldn't be so closely involved with their projects, because if this had happened to a billionaire, they'd probably say, Just go ahead and replace the whole thing. As a matter of fact, just throw away the whole car and I'll get one in blue. What was I saying? Oh, right. Repairing a Tesla sucks. Controversy erupted earlier this week from MKBHD, and I'm actually not positive that he was the original source, but he tweeted out a video showing that the Apple Weather app would not display the number 69. Now, stop giggling. Stop giggling. Okay, fine. I giggled too. Just get it out of your system now. I'll wait. Okay, so the app won't show the number 69. There was some speculation about why. It's just a number like anything else, right? Sure, there are some uh, <clears throat> implications there, but it's fine. Apple can't possibly be that prudish, right? Well, it turns out the app received data from weather.com and translates it over to the app. The only problem is, for some reason in America, the app receives the data in Celsius and then converts it to Fahrenheit because Americans don't use the metric system because Americans are dumb. Anyway, when converting numbers from Celsius to Fahrenheit, there seems to be a rounding error that causes the app to jump from 68 to 70 degrees. Further study also showed that the app wouldn't display 67 or 65 either, so this is most likely a math thing, and it's a math thing that's already been fixed because iOS 15 beta shows the number 69 in the weather app, so this really is a non-issue, except it's hilarious, and yes, I'm 44 years old. I mentioned this at the top of the show, but this week also saw the launch of a MagSafe-compatible battery pack that snaps onto the back of an iPhone 12 and juices it up wirelessly, which is convenient. The battery pack has dual 1,400 mAh cells, which is... Not a lot, and the battery pack costs $99. So if you're wondering if the Apple tax is alive and well, spoiler alert... It is. Not coincidentally, this week's Tech Yeah is a Mophie power pack that does the same thing with twice the power for half the price. I mean, seriously, this thing is $99 and it doesn't even match the battery size of an iPhone 12 Pro Max. That's just silly. And yes, of course, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to buy one. You are more than welcome to spend your money on this and, in turn, spend your money on me. But you shouldn't, but I ain't going to stop you. In all seriousness, there are a plethora of power options out there that work with MagSafe that you can attach to the back of your iPhone mini if you want it to last longer than a few hours between charges, including the Mophie pack that I'll tell you about in a little bit. What's funny about this is that the myth about the Apple tax has been largely overstated except in the realm of accessories. Like, a premium iPhone is $1,000, just like a premium Samsung phone is $1,000, and a premium OnePlus phone is $1,000. Even in the world of tablets, a good tablet is worth around three to $400 in Android, just like Apple. iPads Pro... 
different conversation, but they belong in the same category as like a super premium Android tablet or even Chromebooks, which can be comparably priced. But in the world of accessories like the MagSafe charger, which is priced at $40, or this MagSafe battery pack for $100, the Apple tax is indeed alive and well. And just what's up with that? In a twist of irony, Fleet, Twitter's Snapchat Stories clone, which produces content for just 24 hours and then disappears, is itself going to disappear. Just over eight months after their debut, Twitter is pulling the plug for two reasons. The first is lack of adoption, and the second is... Duh. I've only posted one Fleet ever, and that was at the behest of a friend of the show, Daniel Bader, and I think, like... Less than a dozen people ever watched it, so, like, whatever. I've never been a fan of disappearing content because I was born before 1990. I believe that if any content is worth creating, it's worth creating forever. Maybe that's grumpy old man approach, but hell, that's what I am. I'm not going to yuck your yum, though. If you're into that, more power to you. They're just not my thing, and you'll still have Instagram and Snapchat and... What, like, doesn't the Domino's app allow you to post temporary content these days? I don't know. Everybody has a stories clone, so it doesn't really matter. Anyway, in their place at the top of the feed will be another Twitter product that I've rarely used, Twitter Spaces. But I think that's a much better use of the space, no pun intended, so I can definitely get on board with that. Apple updated its privacy terms a while ago, which allows users to ask apps not to track them across apps. According to a new study that came out this week, only 25% of users are opting in to cross-app tracking, and advertisers are starting to freak the hell out. The main issue they're having, particularly on Facebook, is that they now cannot know how effective their advertising is. They don't really know what's working and what isn't because people aren't letting them track their activity. This is crippling for digital advertisers who have become honestly a bit complacent at the preponderance of data available to them. Now, a lot of that data is gone. There is a form of advertising where you just cast a wide net and hope the results are good. Whenever a podcaster says, this podcast brought to you by Audible or Stamps.com, that's the kind of advertising that's more common. It's called brand awareness, I think. And by the way, this podcast is not brought to you by Audible or Stamps.com, but they can call me. Digital marketers are used to results-based advertising where they can specifically target 31-and-a-half-year-old housewives and see that ultimately 20% of them make a buy. Now, they can still target the housewives, but they have no idea who is buying except a general, oh, good, sales went up by 1% last quarter. Yay. And don't get me wrong, this is a legitimate problem that Facebook and Apple kind of need to fix because data is crucial to digital spending and if advertisers stop spending digitally people like me who write for sites that rely on digital advertising are going to have a very very big problem i get that apple likes security and that's fine when you're making a 300 percent profit margin on each phone and accessories sold but the rest of us have to work too apple And finally, many services have touted themselves as the Netflix of games, air quotes, from Xbox Game Pass to... Okay, so I'm not a gamer, and that's the only one that really jumps to mind, but... Oh, Stadia? Stadia? R.I.P. Stadia. But anyway, we'll soon have a new competitor for the Netflix of games... 
Netflix. I'm not sure why it took Netflix so long to figure this out, but Netflix looks to add games to its video streaming service platform in the not-too-distant future. And by not-too-distant future, you have to understand I'm talking about gaming here, so about a year or so. That might seem like a long time, but remember, this is an industry that makes trailers about making trailers for games and then has Keanu Reeves show them off at E3. 12 months is breakneck pace in the gaming world. While well, I'm not entirely sure what form this offering will take, will it be a separate service? Will it be a bundled service? Will Netflix just jump up to 25 bucks a month to include games that I'll never play? We're not sure, but Netflix is serious about this, serious enough to hire Mark Verdu to be its vice president of game development, and that title is interesting because gaming development suggests making games, and 12 months is an insane timeline for making games, especially when starting from scratch. But Verdu has the background for it, previously working for Facebook Reality Labs and Electronic Arts, so if anybody has the chops for this, it's him. So we'll have to wait and see what comes of it, and see if Netflix can indeed become the Netflix of games. Backend application API bugs attachment DevOps backend frameworks backward compiling oriented natural language software blue text editor book margin Boolean web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah. This week's Tech Yeah is not a coincidence. Mophie contacted me a few weeks ago and asked if I wanted to check out a few of their accessories coming to the iPhone 12 and MagSafe. Mophie has a whole ecosystem of Snap accessories that are designed to work with MagSafe. One of those is the Snap Juice Pack Mini. This is a 5,000 mAh battery that snaps onto the back of your iPhone 12 or... Spoiler alert for an upcoming Tech Yeah, but any other phone you want with wireless charging. Snap Juice Pack comes with a Mophie Snap Adapter, which itself is a circular ring of magnets that you attach to the back of your phone to make it Snap compatible. I'll talk more about this in a future Tech Yeah, but for now, let's just say reviews are mixed. Getting back to the battery pack, it's fairly slim, about what you'd normally see for a 5,000 milliamp hour battery. It's just under half an inch thick, and it measures four and a quarter inches by two and a half inches, length and width. In short, it's only slightly thicker than the phone itself, and the magnet is very strong. I was able to put this into my pocket and pull it back out without it getting detached from the iPhone. If you're like me and you've walked around with two phones in your pocket before, it's a familiar sensation. It's not terribly comfortable, but what do you want for an extra 5,000? milliamp hour battery. Plus, compared to the Apple version, this is 40% of the cost and just under double the capacity. You really can't argue with that. The battery is covered with a plastic outer casing that feels like a faux fabric to the touch. It has rounded sides, so it's not uncomfortable to hold. On the bottom of the battery, you have a single USB Type-C port that is bi-directional. You can use it to charge up the battery itself or plug in a USB-C cable to charge your device with the cable instead of Qi wireless charging. There's also a power button and four PIP battery indicators. Overall, this is a very nice accessory to pick up from Mophie. If you have any phone 
phone that has wireless charging, I recommend it. But if you especially have an iPhone 12, I definitely recommend it. One thing to keep in mind is that while the snap adapter will work on any phone with Qi charging, the battery pack is designed for the iPhone. It will not interfere with the camera on the iPhone, but it might on a different device depending on where the charging coils are and where the cameras are. Of course, there's a link to it on Amazon at benefitofadow.com, and if you pick one up, I'll get a little commission at no extra cost to you, and you'll have my thanks. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. If you have watched any kind of televised sports in the last few decades, you have seen the work of my next guest. And if we were talking five years ago, we would be talking about that. And we'd also be on a different podcast, different story. Anyway, recently he made the transition over to solving a global problem that doesn't involve disease or flooding. Rather, it's solving the broken food system worldwide. And to do that, he's created an interesting device... You can call it a device that has brought fun and gardening into the even the harshest Chicago winters. I met him at CES. I wrote about him for Digital Trends. Link in the show notes. And he now joins me on the podcast today. Hank Adams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Happy to talk to you again. Yeah, it's it's great to talk to you again. A uh, little background. I mentioned this before. We met at CES um, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first of all, I was interested in Rise Gardens, which we will definitely spend a long time talking about. Um, but also, I learned that you're a fellow Chicago native, so that was fun. Now, um, I learned you used to be the CEO of Sport Vision, and, and if that doesn't mean a lot to my listeners, think about the yellow line that goes across a football field when you're try, trying to figure out where the uh, first down is. He made that. So now we're going to talk about Rise Gardens. Don't worry. <laughs> but I could not in good conscience have you on my show and not talk about that magic yellow line at least a little bit. So um, it's just that's such a revolutionary thing. And the uh, like the pitch tracker in base. I'm a baseball fan, so I'm definitely down for the like the pitch tracking. Yeah. How do you feel knowing that you have made so many umpires look so bad over the years? <laughs> oh, that's a that is a long discussion. And, uh, and I'm happy to go into it because there's some fun. There's some fun anecdotes to that. Um, mm. But I would point out uh, that, you know, like all good ideas, it has many fathers, you know, where. Uh, but I will claim to be one of the fathers of the yellow line. I did run the company that that invented the yellow line, but uh, I, I don't claim that I was the one who invented it. There was a really interesting bit recently on um, Madden, who uh, is one of the acclaimed fathers of the of the yellow line, one of the many acclaimed fathers of the yellow line. But uh, the story goes that uh, one of the myths of our creation was that, you know, he did all that crazy telestration. And uh, one time he's like, you know, I, I, like, I'd like to know where the yellow line is, and where, where the first down is. I, I can't tell where the first <laughs> down is when they zoom in, you know. And he was telestrating on the screen. And that led to, you know, a series of conversations and uh, a bunch of really, really smart people, a lot smarter than I am, uh, figuring <laughs> out how to do the, uh, the math and the physics to, uh, you know, make that product happen. But it really did revolutionize televised sports. I mean, it, it was a fun, fun job to have. As I've always said, it's the, the best cocktail party job I'm ever going to have. Um, um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. But for, for to answer your question on baseball, uh, I will say this. I'm, I'm far enough removed. I suppose I can I can speak a little more freely than than I might have at the time. Um, so the umpire union did not like 
the idea that we were going to be calling balls and strikes on broadcast and putting a trail on the ball and showing the watermark right where it crossed over and showing the strike mm-hmm. zone. So uh, so we did a lot of things to uh, try <laughs> not to make them look bad. Um, so you'll notice, first of all, we fuzzed out. You notice there's not a really crisp line. The mm-hmm. the The top and the bottom of the strike zone are a little subjective, right? It's supposed to be... You know, hollow of the knees and, you know, knees of the letters. Yeah. Two, that yeah. The letters. But, yeah. you know, it's it's obviously it varies with every ump. It's, it varies with every batting stance, all that sort of stuff. So that is a little bit more of a judgment call. The edges of a, the, the vertical planes are not a judgment call. I mean, we could draw right. a very crisp line of where that is. And indeed, for a while, we even drawing a 3D uh you know, a uh, box in space, right? Like this giant mm-hmm. tube because a ball could technically miss the front of the plate and come and catch the back of the plate. You sometimes see yep. that happen. So, yep. Often anyhow, see we, that happen. we could do that with a, with very, very fine graphics, but you'll notice it, it's pretty wide and it just fades out on the edges, right? So if a ball <laughs> right. comes and kind of hits the edge, you're not really clear as a fan, is that a strike or not? Or what are they saying? So we did that. Um, we went to great pains to point out, uh, well, the announcers did, or especially early on, that this was, quote, an unofficial system. Yeah. Uh, it was not used to, you know, judge balls and strikes or umpires or anything else, that it was just an entertainment product. That isn't the full story, actually. <laughs> um, it was the official umpire evaluation system, and it was how the umpires would get ranked and then ultimately get postseason play and World Series assignments. So. Yeah, they went um, at first. They resisted it. They came to embrace it. And in fact, it actually improved the umpires uh, balls and strike calls because every game afterwards, we would we would basically burn a disc that had every pitch thrown ball strike, what they called what we thought it was. And they could mm-hmm. go back and then we would have little color highlights and they could everyone that we disagreed with their call was red and they could click on it and watch the video and see it again. And so it actually mm. there was a really good training aspect to it. And and the truth oh, yeah. is the umpires are pretty darn good. I, I, you know, I think <laughs> when we started their their accuracy rate, rate was in the 92, 93 percent. And it ended up being, uh, I think, you know, edging up to closer to 95 percent because, you know, better training and, and you know. Uh, we even had a couple of minor league games where we were the official ball and strike caller. I don't know if you know. Okay, that, but well, I I know that there I know that there have been pushes into like I call it Team Robo Ump because I am fully on. I would love to have like an automated balls and strike system yeah. because yeah, no, so. for sure, and and it would improve it uh, again. Back in the day, I would never have said that. In every World Series, I'd get calls from reporters asking this, you know, question like, <laughs> "Should we, should we automate?" And I'd say, "No, no, no, no. You know, it's it's better." The umpire said, "Technology sometimes fails, et cetera, et cetera." But the truth is, it it it, it didn't fail, um, and you could have umpires as the backup if it if a system did yeah. crash for some reason, but it, that just didn't happen. Um, yeah. Anyhow, there's been some interesting analysis that people have done with the data. It's, it became a data system, effectively. We were known as a, a TV effects graphics company, but the truth is it was the data. We did lots of tracking. And, oh, that, yeah. you know, we tracked NASCAR cars and, you know, America's Cup sailboats and uh, football players and all sorts of interesting stuff. So, You know, we keep talking about this. It may turn into a different podcast. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, we could, we could <laughs> but... jump over and talk plants. That's, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And right now my entire audience is like, no! But no, that's what we're here to talk about, folks. So, And it's my podcast, so we get to talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> Not to say we won't have Hank back sometime, but um, but for now. Uh, so, Hank, the reason I, I spoke with you back at CES was because you had developed an, in, uh, an, an indoor hydroponic smart gardening system, which is a lot of labels <laughs> for a single product. Um, and uh, actually, at the time, you were promoting your countertop model, which I believe is on the counter behind you there. Yep. Um, and I have since had the opportunity to try out and I'm continuing to try out the uh, the single level and the double level model, which is uh, which has brought... Um, you know, I've never snacked on so much lettuce in my life, I have to say. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, let's start off by talking about Rise Gardens, what Rise is, and um, then we could talk about, you know, more ph- philosophically about the company and sure. what you're looking to do. So let's just start off with, with the who, what, where, why, how. Okay, uh, certainly. You did a good job of, of capturing a good a portion of it um, because we are a uh, indoor uh, gardening system. Um, we really think of it more now as a food system because I think it's a bit narrow to call it a gardening system, although technically it's a garden, right? It is growing food for you. Um, but, uh, there's some, you know, distinct differences between, you know, gardening and, um, you know, growing indoors. Uh, having said that I'm a gardener. That's what got me into it. Um, many, many of our, our customers, um, our gardeners and love it for the same reasons that you love a garden. It's just the, the, the idea that you're nurturing something that you're, uh, that's, that's beautiful, that tastes great, you know, is, is better for you than food that you're going to buy in the store. It's got more nutrients. It's got, you know, no chemicals. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons to do it and to enjoy it. And all of that is true. Um, perhaps the biggest difference is you, you really don't need to be an expert gardener to, to be able to run our system. You know, we, it comes with an app. Um, it comes with pretty explicit directions on what to do. We'll tell you when to add nutrients, when to add water and all of that sort of stuff. Um, it, and it's funny because we've had people come to us and say, well, I'm a very experienced gardener. Even in one case, they said, I'm a master gardener, but I don't know anything about hydroponics. And I said, Really, don't worry about it. Um, trust me, in, yeah. in about a month, you're going to be pushing our system to see what else it can do. Um, because we really built it as a, as a platform. I mean, to, to carry on the description a little bit, it is an indoor growing system. It's got, uh, it's modular. You can make it one, two or three levels. But even within those levels, you can make it modular. You can add different uh, tray lid types. You can add plant supports. You can add trellises. Um, the different tray supports uh, or the different tray types will allow you to grow you know, food more densely. It'll allow you to grow uh, very soon microgreens in the garden. Um, rooted, it already grows rooted vegetables, but we're working on you know even more carrots and some others. Um, so it it is a very uh, flexible system. It mm-hmm. is it is really productive. I mean that's probably something you're starting to find here. Um, oh, once yeah. that system starts to get mature and producing. It produces a lot of food that surprises people just how productive it is. Um, oh, but, absolutely. But the, the thing about the, the more sophisticated gardeners that's fun for us is, uh, you know, right away, a lot of people recognize, hey, this is great light. And they'll bring their house plants and put them underneath the lights while, while their other plants are small. Or they'll put chairs around it and use it for that. And then uh, we've had people saying, hey, 
what's everybody else done for a trellis system? And, you know, we'll see people trying to do trellises. Now, we've since come out with trellises that you can attach. But some of our best ideas are coming from our users who are like, hey, I want to, you know, grow this. And, and here's a hack I came up with. You know, does this work or what should, you know, what else should I do? It's a lot of fun. I, I think that's one of the, the keys to it is it's really fun. You just feel this great sense of accomplishment and um, like you're, you know, you're nourishing something in the world, you know, making something grow and it's going to nourish you. So it's really, it's, it's, it's fun. Enjoying this interview? Did you know that there are over 10 more minutes of time where we talked that ended up on the bonus version? The full interview is available to all of my patrons right now over at patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like access to my Discord, early podcasts, bonus live shows, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. That's patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt and if you don't want to be a patron that's okay too full interviews become available at the beginning of each new month so for example trimmed interviews in january will have the full versions on february 1st i don't want you to miss out just head over to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt and you can listen to the full interviews even if you don't subscribe because i still want you to love the show there are more great options for helping me out at benefit of support that's benefit of the slash support you'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadow.com slash support i hope you visit i hope you take in some full interviews and as always i thank you for listening And, and a not insignificant part of that is, you know, you referenced when we spoke the, uh, for the first time for Digital Trends, we spoke in January and you still had all this stuff growing in Chicago in the middle of like one of the harshest winters that I can remember. I mean, it was like, it was terrible outside and it was snowing all the time and it was just, I, I ugh gross anyway i'm not a big fan of winter but you had all this all this stuff growing behind you like in chicago you get maybe may june july august maybe september to grow something and like you know whereas now like it's not even may and i've already got like a full garden's worth of of stuff growing in my kitchen which is really cool and and like you know it's it's not an insignificant thing (laughs) that uh that you can grow your own food like i said i've never snacked on so much lettuce in my life and i learned i like swiss chard go figure i didn't even know that (laughs) um i'm glad to hear that because that's uh, one of my favorite plants actually yeah, and it's so a cut like, and come again plant, so it's really productive, man. You get that Swiss chard gets big, and it just keeps sending out shoots, and you can just keep harvesting for the longest time. I make, I throw it in smoothies, or I put it in eggs and omelets in the mornings. It's it's really fun, you know. Ooh, the um, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's good. Yeah, chop up, get those get those you know tough ribs out of it, but it's really sautés. It's it's better than kale in my view. It tastes better, uh, but it also. Um, is is a softer plant and it mixes really nicely um, in with eggs and others. Um, really got some great vitamin profile too. Yeah, so uh, it we encourage people to use their garden uh, as a starter system for growing outdoors uh, because it's great for that. But I, I have to point out as an experienced gardener uh, in Chicago, 
that season you described, even that is broken up quite a bit, right? Because past July, mm-hmm. I can't grow lettuces outside. It's just too hot. You know, they'll bolt oh, yeah. in, in a hurry. And, you know, tomatoes, I, I love tomatoes if I'm successful keeping the chipmunks off of them, which I'm often <laughs> not. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, you know, even that is a three to four week season for us. So Relatable content. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I didn't build this to to discourage people from gardening outdoors. I, I will never do that. I, I think it's a great thing to do. I want people to do it. It's a great way to engage your kids in, you know, in the food that they eat and teach them some great lessons. Um, but it's it's constraint, right? I mean, there's just there's yeah. some limits to it in, in any climate, right? I mean, you could be, you know, in the southern part of the U.S. and, you know, the opposite problem happens. They, they've got some temperate climate, you know, for some of the year and it gets too hot for much of the year. So, yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's transition on over into the why, uh, because that was actually a bulk of our conversation when we first talked. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Why rise gardens? Like, it's not just because you have a green thumb and, you know, you do have a green thumb and God bless you for it. But um, what was the uh, what was the problem that you're looking to uh, solve, even if it is one garden at a time? Yeah. So. I mean, it's been well reported and, and I assume, you know, your listeners will have been exposed to this to a greater or lesser degree. But, you know, the, the U.S. food system is largely broken. Um, it's it contributes to something on the order of a quarter of our greenhouse gases. It's, you know, agriculture is very, very uh, big carbon footprint, especially the way we do it. Um, it's largely centered around monoculture crops. So giant fields planted with one, uh, crop. And as you know, Mm -hmm. nature hates that nature really does not like that. So in order to, you know, get a gigantic field of, of one crop, you know, you have to do all the things that are probably very bad for us and very bad for the environment. You've got to put, you know, chemical treatments on the fields. You've got to, uh, generally pump, you know, water up from the aquifers because we're growing a lot of this food in the Central Valley of California, which is effectively a desert. Um, yeah. you know, it's draining Colorado River and now it's draining the aquifers out there. Um, you know, you've got to spray, you know, pesticides and chemicals all over your your uh, plants to, to keep the bugs out. Um, and then they harvest it. It starts uh, basically shedding nutrients immediately. And, uh, you know, they, they do all sorts of stuff to try and preserve that. But that means, that, you know, refrigerated containers, you know, refrigerated uh, transports and, you know, distribution centers and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, by the time you get that lettuce, it's traveled, you know, 1500 miles. And it's, you know, probably a week old before you even buy it and throw it in your fridge, which isn't a great system because you've lost almost all of the water-based nutrients, you know, um, and vitamins mm-hmm. in, that, in that plant by then. So even if you're buying an organic in a very expensive head of lettuce, you're not really getting nearly what you'd be getting out of a system that, you know, a a head of lettuce that you don't have to harvest until you're literally ready to eat it. So um, there are... And that's assuming you buy it in the first place. And, you know, there's a whole big waste problem going on in supermarkets and whatnot. Um, Yeah. And so, like you're solving, you're kind of solving that problem as well. I mean, I can't remember the last time we bought lettuce because I've been growing my own for the yeah, last three or four really, months. It's, it's really fun. Uh, 
we call it a living larder, you know, or, or a living pantry because it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's there for you and available whenever you want it. It's alive. Um, and so you can cut it in, in some plants, you cut a portion and it keeps going and some you harvest the whole thing. But, yeah. um, and, and of course then, you know, it's super nutrient dense. We're recycling the nutrients. So it's not running off to waste. It's not, you know, polluting the rivers and ultimately ending up in the Gulf stream and, you know, causing all the, oxygen depletion and algae blooms and everything that's happening in the Gulf Coast right now um, and has been happening for a while. So you don't get that. You, you know, you're not losing the water. We're recycling the water. We're not incurring all the food miles to get it. We're not adding, uh, you know, chemical pesticides that aren't probably good for your body. Um, and so it's, you know, there's, there's enormous environmental benefits to it. There's also enormous health benefits to it. And I think one of the coolest parts about the system, and in a signature move of an Adam Dowd interview, we're actually going to go a little bit backwards here, but one of the cool things about the Rise Garden, and especially the countertop, um, the countertop model, is you don't necessarily need to be by a window. You can put this garden basically anywhere where you have room for it because it has built in a built-in led light ceiling to it that always you know that shines down light on a schedule actually as determined by the app which is also kind of fun but like i said one of the cool things is it's a self-contained system you don't need to have natural light in order to grow so i could i could theoretically put one of these rise gardens down in my basement and and grow stuff down there i was not aware that a plant could grow based on artificial light and you seem to have either either a it was never a problem to begin with or b you have solved that problem in some way so i guess my question is which is it <laughs> <laughs> well we're piggybacking on work that a lot of other people have done um this you know, people were growing hydroponically and, and have been for a very long time. Oftentimes it would be outdoor systems. I, I, you know, I think the earliest example I want to say was the Mayans, maybe, um, you know, 6,000 years ago. It, it's, it goes way, way back of growing in water only. You know, that's, that's the definition of hydroponics, right? No soil. Right. Um, you don't have to be indoors to do it. Uh, but it had, you know, moved indoors. Um, and But the lights were inefficient. They were you know, these um, high pressure sodium systems. And uh, in some cases they were just fluorescent lights, but they just didn't have enough oomph. Or if they did have enough oomph, they just sucked power like crazy, which is why you used to hear stories um, about uh, planes flying over with infrared, you know, sensors looking for basements, you know, houses that were lit up because that meant they were growing cannabis illegally. Right, Um, right. And, you know, part of that had to do with the fact that the LEDs were so inefficient, they would throw off a lot of heat and a lot of, you know, light out of the spectrum that you need. It's come so far that the LEDs are so much less expensive now uh, that they're able to, um, they give off very little heat. So it's super efficient. They don't cost that much. And, and we know what spectrum is ideal for the plants. Um, technically it is that purple light because it's a combination of red and blue plants can absorb green, which is, they reflect it back. That's why plants look green. But, um, we, we combined red, green, and blue in most of the LEDs. So it gives you a white light. That's the combination Mm -hmm. of those three will give you white. And then we have a couple of, um, scattered throughout the reds and blues, um, enough to be just that much more efficient with the light that the plants want without turning your living room into this, you know, 
purple grow room, which disco people would right. really like. Yeah, well, disco <laughs> or uh, you know, pot growing operation, which I got some jokes from my friends when I first started experimenting with these things. Well, it's legal here now, so it's fine. Yeah. Or maybe the grow, maybe the growing isn't. I don't know. I can go buy it if I want to. But uh, yeah, there, anyway, there are some. You you can grow a small amount, I believe, now as well. But. Um, so uh, one one question that I wanted to ask, and actually this is a question I didn't get get a chance to ask you back in January. Why did you decide to go with hydroponics as opposed to a more traditional soil type growth system? So um, I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that um, hydroponics is is it's faster. You're controlling all okay. the inputs. Um, so, you know, the plant gets the right amount of water, the right amount of nutrients, the right amount of light, the right, you know, your, your the humidity and the temperature. Um, it's really efficient for growing for plants. They really, really like it. They grow fast. They grow healthy. Um, you yes, know, they do. If, you're, if you're going to start putting <laughs> stuff in soil, it would be really hard to do in a sort of format. I mean, there you're just telling people put things in, in pots and, you know, find some sort of light racking system to do it. And people do that as well certainly um mm -hmm. but that gets tricky because keeping soil at the right you know moisture levels for different plants for different you know uh, levels of development is hard to do uh as you could probably appreciate i'm i'm an experienced gardener and i have to really pay attention to the pots um harder to do in pots by far than it is to do outside in soil so um, when when you came to CES this year, you were actually promoting your latest product, which was the countertop uh, version of the Rise Garden. So uh, I'm just I'm just what what made you decide to go with a countertop mod, mod, uh, model? Ugh, I can talk, really, I can. What made you decide to go with a countertop model as opposed to like the one of the single tier systems that I have, which is like, and I should describe the single tier system is kind of like a large. Uh, you know, fairly large-ish, kind of like a, about the size of a sofa table cabinet with like a whole water uh, tank and there are sensors in there and there's, you know, Wi-Fi in there. So like now you have a countertop model with seemingly without that, um, with or at least with smaller electronics. And like, how does the countertop system compare to the single tier system? Yeah, well, it's a good question. And, and just to put some numbers on it for people, the family garden, which is what we call the, the larger system. That's is, the word I was looking is, for. Yeah, 36 inches. It's three feet wide and about 18 inches deep. Uh, and the height, as I said, will vary depending on how many levels that you have. But that single level is really designed. It could be used as an entry table. It could be used behind a couch. You know, we, we if you mm -hmm. stack two of them, you can basically put them right behind the couch and they're, they're about at that level. Um, and that's, you know, people like doing that because it, it looks like furniture. One of the things that we really tried hard to do was, was give a lot of, you know, consideration to the design of this thing. It's powder coated metal. It's sturdy. It's, you know, it's real wood in the system. Um, a lot of others who are in this space are, you know, they're, they're doing it with plastic and it's, you know, many of them are sort of what I call novelty growing systems. You know, we, we do a lot. We have three part nutrients and pH management and sensors to help you detect all that and detect the water levels. And, you know, we, we have an algorithm that tells you based on your plant's age and what you're growing, what to add for nutrients. So, you know, we really yeah. dial it in and we try to make it easy for you, but we really do, you know, we pay attention to that. And it has fabulous tasting, you know, uh, food because of that. Um, but, 
you know, and we got really good feedback and still, you know, that's been a very successful product for us. The, the countertop version, which we call the personal garden, personal rice garden, um, we did because we had people say to us, well, you know, gosh, even though it's sort of, it's designed to be sort of bookshelf, you know, footprint. And yeah. the thinking was most people have room for a bookshelf somewhere. And even if you're in an efficiency, you know, in New York City, you can still probably have a bookshelf somewhere. But, you know, even then people are like, gosh, it's just, I, I just don't have the room or I don't have it in my budget or I don't know if I can do it. I'd like to try it first and then, you know, maybe move over. And so based on all of that, we um, we decided to uh, try to come up with one that's that's more of a countertop version, less expensive, smaller. But importantly, everything that we did, we did with it in mind that it would allow you to, um, uh, you know, transition all those accessories I talked about, all those different tray covers, the tray covers you can swap between systems, the plant supports you can swap, the net cups you can swap, the nutrients are the same. Um, the idea You're like is the it, Lego of hydro, hydroponics. Yeah, I like it. Exactly. Because <laughs> what we really wanted to make it easy for people um, you know, to, to, if they did like it to, to transition. And I will say this, um, it's a little early for us to know if people are going to buy personal gardens and, and then upgrade to family gardens, but those who buy family gardens, um, and I think you're in this boat, you know, they'll start with a one or two level and almost a third of them will, will upgrade levels at a later date mm-hmm. because I don't doubt know, it. they really like it. Um, and, and they find it just that much fun apparently, right? Because, Otherwise, I, I assume they wouldn't be, uh, you know, growing. Upgrading. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Well, um, okay. Well, I think I have kept you about as long as I said I was going to. So this is probably the time that we can go ahead and start uh, wrapping things up. So um, now I'm going to go ahead and just uh, let you uh, tell my audience, like, how they can get a hold of you or how they where they can find Rise Gardens and, uh, you know, start uh, pimping your stuff, as it were. Oh, sure. So, uh, well. Yeah. You know, the usual social handles at Rise Gardens, Bound Rise Gardens, et cetera. Um, check it out. Uh, you know, we, we're on Facebook as well, but our website is is uh, www.risegardens.com. Um, link in uh, the show notes. Yeah. And that's, yeah, link in the show notes. Um, yeah. Check it out. You'll, uh, you can see it. Uh, we have a lot of videos on the, the system and I'd encourage you to check out what people do on Instagram because that to me... And that's just, it's so cool to watch what people are doing with their gardens and how much they're enjoying it and how much they're showing off what they're growing and how they're engaging their kids and their kids are building fairy gardens in their, you know, they're in and amongst their arugula and lettuce. And that's just like really, it's really fun and, and gratifying to that people are enjoying the product so much. But I, I will say this, once you get growing in this system and you've experienced this, you get hooked. It's just, it's, it's really fun. So um, it is. Yeah, that's it how you is. can that's how you can find us. Awesome, awesome. And I will go ahead and just say it has been a ball uh, uh, working with the Rise Garden. And, you know, like I said, just, you know, when you're walking through the kitchen, just grab a leaf of lettuce and, and snack on it while, while I'm walking. Through. It's, it's really kind of like... I don't want to use the word powerful, but it's kind of powerful. Like just reaching over and just grabbing something that you grew, and man, now I want some Swiss chard. So, um, all right, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Then um, I want to thank you for coming on and talking with us about not only plants and hydroponics, but also baseball. And 
I may come through and uh, and get you back on here to to talk more <laughs> about that because that is just too that is just too cool. Yeah. But um, anyway, uh, for now, I just wanted to thank you for coming on, and hopefully, we can have you on again sometime. I enjoyed it, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Glad glad that you're enjoying your experience growing too. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Hank Adams for coming on and talking to us all about football and veggies in the same conversation. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>